0: we have an opportunity uh, this morning to look at God's word and to continue our worship uh, through scripture and so uh, we're going to continue our study in the gospel of John we'll be finishing up John chapter 9 this morning it is not uncommon to uncommon for people to say that the bible is hard to understand we hear that a lot it's a common criticism of people especially who are new to the bible I don't understand what I'm reading. It's hard to understand. I'm confused. And it's not entirely unfounded because the Bible can be very difficult to understand. In fact, uh, the apostle Peter himself says in 2 Peter 3.16, he writes, saying of Paul's writings, that they're hard to understand. And so we're in good company. If Peter thinks Paul was hard to understand, well, I feel a little bit better when I'm confused by Paul. I suspect that people think the Bible's hard to understand mostly because they don't really know what to expect when they start reading. They come to the Bible with a presupposition, a hypothesis, or some theory about what a book like the Bible might contain. And when the Bible doesn't jibe with what they expect, well, they say, well, I don't understand, or I'm confused. For most of us, Certainly for the believer, we press on. We keep reading, we keep learning, and the Bible becomes more clear to us. If the Bible were a puzzle, we begin to understand what the pieces look like, and we begin to kind of understand what the edge pieces look like, and we begin to put the puzzle together. We, We slowly assemble the right pieces of the puzzle, and the Bible slowly begins to take shape. That being said, there's that pesky sky you know the pesky sky, the, the sky that every piece of the puzzle is that exact same shade of blue? And it's typically about a third of the puzzle? Of course, detractors have taken those pieces and they've used them to argue against the Bible, to argue that the Bible has contradictions, that it's a puzzle too hard to assemble, or that it's flawed, it can't be put together. When we think of detractors, when we think of critics of the Bible, we often think of skeptics like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Thomas Jefferson, or if you've been around for some time, Bertrand Russell. But even some heroes of the faith struggled to make sense of portions of Scripture. The most famous is probably Martin Luther. Luther struggled to harmonize the book of James with Paul's writings. He went, so far, to famously call James's letter an epistle of straw, or a strawy epistle, depending on the translation. I suppose if Luther struggled to make sense of the puzzle, well, we might also. That being said, we should say that in the 500 years since Luther, we have found a way to harmonize the Book of James with Paul's writings. They're not in conflict. Conflict, excuse me. They are two sides. Of the one coin. In the letter of James, we learn that faith is demonstrated by our works. In the letters of Paul, we learn that we're not saved by our works. These are not in conflict. Again, there are two sides to the one coin. We're saved by grace through faith, and that faith always gives practical evidence. As I like saying, saving faith is sanctifying faith. If Paul focuses on saving faith or stresses saving faith, James stresses sanctifying faith. There is a truth in our passage this morning that at face value seems like a contradiction. And it's something we studied earlier. This supposed contradiction relates to the subject of judgment. Judgment. Jesus said in John 3:17, remember months ago we studied that John 3:17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And in John 8:15, Jesus says himself very starkly, I judge no one. Yet, in our passage this morning as we'll see, John Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world. So which is it? Did Jesus come to judge or not? Is there a way to harmonize these two statements from Jesus? Can both be true? Is it possible that Jesus came not to judge, yet his coming results in a kind of judgment? In what sense can Jesus say, I judge no one? And in what sense can Jesus say, for judgment, I came into the world? Well, how about we find out? Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning is John 9, verses 35 through 41. A little context, if you haven't been with us, this is Uh, a long narrative about uh, in the event of Jesus healing the blind man, the man who was blind from birth. You remember Jesus heals him and then this puts the man right in front of the Pharisees and he is interrogated by them and he has to essentially defend his faith and he is then excommunicated or cast out of the synagogue. So that all just happened as we jump right into the narrative, chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out And having found him, the once blind man, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Our big idea this morning is this. Two responses reveal the judgment The light makes. Two responses reveal the judgment the light makes. The best place for us to start is right there in the middle of this text in verse 39. Again, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. This verse is really kind of a canopy, you might say, under which both the blind and those with sight are to be found. These words from Jesus appear to be some kind of mission statement. When Jesus says, I came into the world, he is speaking here of the incarnation. He's speaking of that period of time in which, as John tells us in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the time that Peter talk, or excuse me, Paul talks about in Philippians 2.8, in which Jesus took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And having taken on flesh, Jesus has a redemptive mission. He has a mission. Jesus articulates that mission in a number of places and in a number of ways. You remember Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to divide people. Luke 12, 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth, peace on earth? No, I tell you. But rather, Jesus says, division. Jesus came to call sinners, Mark two seventeen. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to serve and to give life, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to proclaim the good news in Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and reclaiming of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came quite simply to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. Jesus came, as we saw in John 6, to do his Father's will, to keep, save, and to resurrect believers. John six thirty-eight through 40, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We'll see next week that Jesus came to give abundant life. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and to have it abundantly. Jesus also came to bear witness to the truth. He stood before Pilate moments before he would be killed. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. The embodiment of truth standing before Pilate. And what does Pilate say? What's his response? What is truth? John 3.17, we've already read it. Jesus also came to save the world. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Yet, what do we have here? Jesus says, John 9.39, For judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What's abundantly clear from all of these verses is that Jesus came to save those who believe. That was his mission. This was his purpose. Yet, you might say, the net effect of that mission results in a judgment against those who do not believe. While he didn't come to judge, judgment was an inevitable consequence of his coming. And that consequence, Jesus frames in the language of a mission. For judgment, I came into the world. And what is the result of such judgment? Well, the result is this. He says, that those who do not see may see. And that those who see, that is, those who think they see, may become blind. Jesus came into the world to make a judgment for those who do not see the blind, and Jesus came into the world to make a judgment against those who think they see. When Jesus says in verse 39 that those who do not see may see, he's using a verb form there that suggests these will not only obtain sight, but they will obtain sight forever. They will always see. He uses a different verb form in the next phrase. That those who see may become blind is a different verb form, and that one suggests that people shall arrive at a point that marks them out as permanently blind. If verse 39 is the canopy under which the events of John 9 take place, then I'll ask you, what character is Jesus speaking of when he says, those who do not see may see? The blind man. And what character is Jesus speaking of when he, or characters, is Jesus speaking of when he says, those who see may become blind? Pharisees. Let's look at the first response that reveals the judgment the light makes, the judgment for those who are blind, verses 35 through 38. Last week, we looked briefly at these verses. In these verses, we see that the blind man was given more than physical sight. He was given spiritual sight. That's what kind of the culmination of this account reveals. And it's in verse 38 that we see the man expresses faith in Jesus. For paying attention throughout the book of John and up to this point in his gospel, we know that John wishes for us to see salvation as a work of God. That is abundantly clear. In the narrative, the the bread of life narrative, you recall in John six thirty seven, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then he says in verse 44, No one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. All of this is in the background as he heals the man who was born blind. It's no wonder then he would heal a man blind from birth to illustrate spiritual sight. A blind man has no ability to give himself sight. A man has no ability to give himself spiritual sight. The only thing that can cure physical blindness is a miracle. And what is the only thing that can cure spiritual blindness? A divine miracle. Is it possible to teach someone into faith? Is that possible? What's required to become a teacher in the state of California? I looked it up. The interwebs. You have to have a complete bachelor. uh, You have to complete, excuse me, a bachelor's degree from an accredited college or university. You have to satisfy a basic skills requirement. You have to verify competence in your subject. Complete a course and pass an exam on the U.S. Constitution, complete a commission approved teacher prep program, and obtain a formal recommendation for your teaching credential. If you satisfy all of that, if you do all of those things, at least in the state of California, you have earned the right to be called a teacher. What is required to become a Christian? Raised in a Christian home? Be baptized, attend a good church, a good Sunday school class, be be able to articulate the virgin birth and the atonement, defend scripture, the trinity. If all this is true, have you earned the right to be called Christian? You've already answered, no. Why? Why have you not earned that right? Because being a Christian isn't like becoming a teacher or joining a club. It's different than that. You can learn all the right things and be an, a very uninformed, uninformed believer. You might even intellectually accept that such things are true. But what is required to become a Christian? Look at John 9. Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing." There it is. This is the miracle that set the once blind man in an entirely new direction. A direction that cost him something. Cost him greatly. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. He was banished from the life of Israel to talk about this man in terms of the cost of discipleship, but we ought to. And yet, for all that this man had done to all that Jesus had done to transform this man, to give him eyes to see, what does he say in verse 35? Do you believe in the Son of man? This is one of those moments in scripture where the the train of God's sovereignty is barreling forward, and then the, the train of human responsibility is barreling forward, and I don't know, they're on the same tracks, and they're heading right at each other. So God has already opened his eyes, he's awakened his heart, and yet he gives him the opportunity do you believe in the Son of Man? In God's infinite wisdom, he has set faith as the necessary complement to the sovereignty of God. The man asks for clarification. If whatever he's gonna put his faith in, he wants to put it in the right place, and so he says, verse 36, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? It's not only that this man's eyes were open, but his heart was open. He's ready to submit. He's ready to believe. He's responsive, like a bird whose wings have grown to fly, and yet he's unaware of his ability to fly. The blind man's heart has grown to believe, yet all that is needed is the opportunity to believe and to take flight. And so Jesus says in verse 37. You have seen him. Isn't that an understatement? Oh, you've seen him. And he is who, it is he who is speaking to you. God has given spiritual sight to the man, and now there's only one thing left for that man to do agree with God. Agree with God that I am the Son of Man. No hesitation. Lord, I believe, and what's he do? He worshiped, he worshiped. The man needed no further proof. He looked upon Jesus with the eyes of faith, and he believed. He had been transformed. He had been given a new life. And not only that, he worshiped him. The Gospel of John actually doesn't say much about worship. John 4 talks about worship, but this is the only place in the gospel where Jesus, where it's anyone is, it's said of anyone that they actually worshiped Jesus. It's the only place in the whole gospel. The Greek word used for worship, John nine thirty eight here, proskuneo, from which we get the idea of prostrating, bowing down. Of course, the Greek word has the added idea of to kiss towards or to kiss the hand, to pay homage It's also implied in the word. What's also implied is the concept of giving. That is as well in this word, this idea of worship. Worship is giving something to God. To worship is to give Him, to ascribe to Him. Principally, it's to ascribe to Him worth, to give Him value, to say, You're worthy. That's what worship is. The concept is difficult because in our flesh, what do we want to do? We don't want to give. What our flesh wants to do is take. This is what prosperity preachers play into when they focus on what we get from God. Although God does give us many good things, certainly he's given us salvation. He gives us many good things. Prosperity preachers tell us that God should give us and will give us if we do what? If we exercise more faith? If we give more money? The problem is, is that when things don't go well, well, whose fault is it? You don't have enough faith, or you haven't given enough money. That's unbiblical. These concepts are foreign to those who have spiritual sight. The essence of authentic faith and true worship is to give God honor and our adoration. This is what the blind man does. The Psalms teach us a lot about worship. We could look at any one of them. But in one place, Psalm 45, 1, David says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. My heart overflows. That's the idea of worship. It's a fitting description. It's a boiling over of our heart toward God. Do you remember on the Emmaus Road and resurrected Christ is speaking there to his disciples and he speaks to them and he opens up what the scriptures say and and the disciples say there, did not our hearts burn within us? They were worshiping. This describes the experience of the once blind beggar. His heart reached the boiling point and it boiled over into worship. Now, what does that worship offered to Jesus say about the blind man? Back to verse 39. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. The blind man was brought face to face with Jesus and his action passes a judgment on himself. What he does with Jesus is a judgment. If any person were to be brought face to face with Jesus and see in Jesus nothing to desire, nothing to admire, nothing to love, nothing to worship, well, then he has condemned himself. He has been judged. And the very fact that he sees nothing to desire, he sees nothing to admire, he sees nothing to love, he sees nothing to worship, is the judgment. it means that God has declared a judgment against him. His heart hasn't been opened. When Jesus says that those who do not see may see, he is speaking of those who are conscious of their own blindness. They're aware of their own weakness. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only when we realize that we are blind, church, can we learn to see. Only when we realize our own sin can we be forgiven. Here's the judgment for those who are blind. They will be given sight. They will find forgiveness. They will inherit eternal life. Like Jesus says in 8.12, kind of the principal verse for this entire section, John 8 and 9, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Are you blind enough to see? There's another judgment to be found in this text. It's this, the judgment against those who can see. This is the other side of verse 39. For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Whoever Jesus was, some of the Pharisees overheard these words, and they questioned Jesus in verse 40. Are we blind? Are we also blind? Excuse me. In light of what we've seen from the Pharisees thus far, it's hard to see anything but contempt for Jesus and pride in this response. Are we also blind? We, must we come to you for sight, we might add? of Course. What's behind the question is the assumption that they can see. We're so blind that we have to go to you? Paul tells us how the Jews saw themselves in Romans 2, 19 and 20. They see themselves as a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, having in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. With such a resume, we're supposed to come to you? We don't even know where you come from. We're blind? This is how I read it. Like the blind man earlier, Jesus turns the words, he uses their word blind, and he turns it against them. He does it very effectively. He points the word back to them. If you were blind, he says, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, which is just what you did, and questioning me, you claim to see, well, guess what? Your sin remains. Your guilt remains. Hamartia, sin. The wrath of God abides on you. There's a judgment against you because you do not see the truth. You're not blind enough to see. Jesus says, if you were blind in the sense that we've explained blindness as a humble heart condition that cries out for spiritual sight. If you were blind in that sense, you'd have no guilt. You would not be guilty of sin, that is, the sin of unbelief that rejects that Jesus is the Son of Man here in the context. But now that you claim to see, well, you show yourself to be satisfied with the light of the law and its traditions, that is, the book of Hebrews tells us, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And consequently, you reject the true light that is standing before you, shining even now. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So Jesus says your guilt remains, your sin remains. These are haunting words. These are words like Mark 3.29 But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, to have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. To see what they saw, to see Jesus in the flesh, to see his miracles, and to reject him is a tragic judgment. A judgment in these terms. It is impossible to restore them. You can write down Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31 for another passage that speaks to that point. It's true that the more knowledge we have, the more we are to be condemned. If we don't acknowledge the truth when we see it, the Pharisees stood in the very presence of the light. They stood in his presence. They saw the miraculous. They saw all that he did. They rejected him and they declared We can see. If these Jews could truly see, if they had spiritual sight, well, they would have acted different towards Jesus. They would have acted like the blind man. If they would have acted like the blind man, they would have acted on the best knowledge they had of Jesus. They would have welcomed him. But the Jews didn't act on the best knowledge. They claimed to have sight and yet acted like the blind. Therefore, Jesus says to them, your guilt remains. And so, this is the judgment against those who can see or claim to see. Two responses reveal the judgment the light makes. The response of those who claim blindness results in forgiveness, and the response of those who claim to see results in condemnation. That's what this passage teaches us. At this point, I think it's clear at this point, I think it's clear, what Jesus means when he says, "I judge no one," in John 8:15." And then he says, "Here, "For judgment, I came into the world." Jesus didn't come into the world for the very purpose of judgment. He came to save, not to condemn, but saving some results in condemning others. It's the net effect of him coming. with a kind of tension. To bring grace, he must also bring an offense. The act of grace requires that sin must be uncovered. To be healed, well, we have to accept that we are in need of a healer. Isn't this what Paul said in Romans 5, 6 through 8? You remember that wonderful verse, wonderful passage? For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, while we were weak. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have to keep that in mind, always. I don't know how they say it, but you've heard something like, you know, the church is, is, uh, It's not a place to, I don't know. The the church is a hospital. There's some phrase there that people use. That's true. The, The church is a place where we come to have our wounds repaired. It's a place for people who are needy and they need help. I want to return again to this response from the once blind man and kind of end there as I begin to close here. It says, and he worshiped him. And he worshiped him. William Temple defined worship this way. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. It's to feed the mind with the truth of God. To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. To devote the will to the purpose of God. I'm not sure exactly what the blind man was thinking when he bowed himself before the Son of Man, but I think likely all of that was true of the man. John MacArthur has has written, Worship is all that we are, reacting rightly to all that he is. That's a great phrase. Worship is all that we are, reacting rightly to all that he is. If all that we are are blind men, then all we can do Is lay at his feet. But if we think we are something, if our hearts, in our hearts, we've turned to the Savior and said, Are we also blind? Then we will not react rightly to all that he is. It's that simple. When we struggle with our sight, our physical sight, we put off the use of glasses. When we're young, we struggle to accept that we need them and that we're getting older. So we refuse to get glasses. When we're older and we need readers, well, we refuse to accept that we are actually old. So we put off the use of glasses. At some point, we can't see without glasses. And what do we do? We just put them on without hesitation and we don't care if people think we're old or not. Because we can't see. So it is with Jesus. Jesus says, those who do not see. For the one who cannot see, he thinks nothing of depending on God. He thinks nothing of it. Have you come to the point where you need glasses? Have you come to the point where you, will, where you will put on Christ and you don't care what people think? Are you blind enough to be given sight? Spurgeon said, own your blindness and you shall find the light come streaming into your eyes. I want to end this morning with a a prayer from the Valley of Vision. You've heard me probably read this before and there's a, a prayer and it's just entitled Worship. I'm going to read it and then I'll invite Joel to come up. Glorious God, it is the flame of our life to worship you, the crown and glory of our soul to adore you, heavenly pleasure to approach you, Give us power by your spirit to help us worship now that we may forget the world, be brought into fullness of life, be refreshed, comforted, and blessed. Give us knowledge of your goodness that we might not be overawed by your greatness. Give us Jesus, son of man, son of God, that we might not be terrified but be drawn near with filial love, family love, with holy boldness. He is our mediator our brother, our interpreter, our branch, our lamb. May we glorify in him. Him we glorify. I'm switching the pronouns around, forgive me. Him we glorify. In him we, we are set on high. Crowns to give, we have none. But what you have given, we return. Content to feel that everything is, is ours when it is yours, and the more fully when we have yielded it to you. Let us live wholly to our Savior, free from distractions, from hindrances to the pursuit of the narrow way. We are pardoned through the blood of Jesus. Give us a new sense of it. Continue to pardon us by it. May we come every day to the fountain, and every day be washed anew, that we may worship you always in spirit and truth. Amen.